Hey everyone, Gil Gross here. Thanks for listening to the Monday Match Analysis Podcast. A reminder that it's a huge help if you rate and review on Apple Podcasts, unsubscribe and resubscribe. Another two-parter today. Uh, The majority of the show is the next edition of Monday Match Analysis Classics. 2013 French Open semifinal between Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic. The best match those two ever played at Roland Garros. Uh, But we start with uh, a video I posted Friday on YouTube. Uh, This is, uh, I didn't even mention it. Steve Flink is my guest for, for both parts of the podcast, the tremendous Hall of Fame tennis writer for Tennis.com. Um, but I wanted to make sure to get Steve's thoughts on the events of last week. This will probably conclude my coverage on all of this uh, because it's been exhausting. But uh, Steve's perspective is certainly a fresh perspective on the Adria Tour and all the players who ended up testing positive for COVID-19 as a result. So without further ado, two-part podcast, first eight minutes on COVID, Adria, and all that. Uh, the next, the rest of it is about uh, 45 minutes, or actually, no, an hour um, on Federer, or excuse me, oh my goodness, Djokovic and Nadal, French Open 2013 semifinal. Enjoy. All right, we're welcoming in Steve Flink, the Hall of Fame tennis writer of Tennis.com and author of the book, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time. Also look out for a Pete Sampras book uh, coming up soon, but... Uh, we wanted to talk about the the recent events that's happened in tennis this week. Of course, the U.S. Open is looming large in late August, in late August, with uh, a couple of warm up tournaments before then. But this week, I I think it's fair to say the entire tennis world suffered a bit of a setback at the Adria Tour with with many of the players, Borna Cioric, Novak Djokovic, Grigor Dimitrov, all testing positive for uh, COVID nineteen. So, Steve, I'm I'm wondering what your takeaways um, from this were, does it have anything to do with the U.S. Open or was this something that is just kind of an isolated case of not taking the proper care? Probably more the latter, Gil. I, I, I feel I have some sympathy for Novak Djokovic in a way that not many people seem to in that he talked to the Serbian authorities. You, know, you, you can't just do this. It's not all of your own doing. You've got to get some approval guidelines to what they'll accept. But then I think he and the other players, I think that what they underestimated was people are coming from all over the world. I mean, I'm told that that Dimitrov had been in Florida at one stage. They're not; they haven't all been hanging out in Serbia and quarantining in Serbia for two weeks. I mean, a lot of some of them may have, some of them have been in Serbia. Others are coming from other countries. So they just took too much solace from feeling like the. The numbers for the virus were very low, infection rate very low in Serbia, and therefore they could pack the stands. The players could come out like normal times. And then you saw Djokovic and the others hugging each other after matches, going to discos in the evening. And I think that was, that was a real mistake for everybody to do that, not just for Novak Djokovic. He's catching all the flack because he organized these. I think his intentions were really quite uh, honorable to you know to put on the tennis and everybody had been pent up and they loved the but I think it really should have been done very differently with spar- much more sparse crowds and players definitely not hugging after matches almost saluting each other keeping literally keeping some social distance and then there, there's no way they should have been in the discos in the evening in those close quarters or playing there was that picture I think of Dimitrov guarding Djokovic on the basketball court with his arm you know the, none of that makes any sense so I think they were I don't think they were cocky. I just think they were they were not uh, realistic about how that virus can travel, and that if you bring people into Serbia, it you know that there's just dangers, and you have to always there there needed to be more caution from everybody. And I think they've all learned. And Dominic Team has since spoken out in the last day or so and said that they got too euphoric is the word he used. And I, I get it. They were excited. They were going to be back out of the court. This was going to be fun, but it should have been handled in a, in a different way. Now, hey, Gil, to, your, to your point, just to quickly add to that, to your point about the U.S. Open, I'm sure it concerns the U.S. Open authorities. Now, they, their argument will be, and it's a good one, but we have very different measures. We're not, none of that's going to exist here, and we are going to discourage the players from handshakes. And we are going to keep them in different, maybe they're going to use some of those suites for 
locker rooms. We're going to keep them socially distancing. And we're not going to put them side by side in cars. And we're going to do this and we're going to do that. I think their measures are, appear to be excellent. Whether it's enough, I think the biggest problem is going to be the players flying in. They may be, I don't know if they get tested before they land in New York, but then what? They get on site or they get to the hotel and they get that first test in or, or they play a couple of days and suddenly one of the players tests positive again and it starts spreading. I think it's going to be a, 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 a real challenge to get to complete that tournament. I admire the USGA for trying, but even with the strong measures, I think keeping it under control will be no simple matter. Don't, do you agree? I, I do agree. I think that I think that players are going to test positive, and I think that's a starting point, a, a safe assumption to make. Uh, yeah. The hope is that unlike at the Adria Tour where the players didn't distance, if one player tests positive, it's going to be okay. It's not going to put the tournament in jeopardy. Right, right. That's, that's, the, major, that's the major difference. I think you make a, a good and important point about responsibility because – I also have uh, some sympathy for Djokovic, who is taking most of the heat here. How many people around Novak Djokovic failed him in this situation? Right, no one, right. No one around him, including the Serbian government, everyone gave him the okay, and someone really should have stopped him. And, yeah, and uh, frankly, he's, he's not an unreasonable guy. And I think yeah. had they made the case, Novak, let's sit down and talk about this. This is great that we're going to have these events, but here's what I think we need to do to ensure your safety and the safety of the other players and the health. I honestly think he would have been open to some of these suggestions. We'll never know, but I, I believe he would have. But I think when everybody just kept giving him the green light, then that, that also put, gave him and the other players a false sense of security. Now, recently, a lot, of the, a lot of the news has actually surrounded Djokovic's father. And I got to say, in my personal opinion, I really don't put much uh, weight into what he ha has to say. I care more about what Djokovic has to say. With that being said, it, it is fairly admonishable that, uh, that Djokovic's father has tried to kind of place all the blame on Grigor Dimitrov. That doesn't seem right. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think it's in a very, un, and maybe it's an understandable emotional reaction from a father who feels that his son is being put under the microscope and, and has been given all this sharp criticism. And in his mind, it's maybe feels a little bit like you and I do that, you know, it's a shared responsibility, but I don't think he had to pin the blame on, I don't, and you don't know, he doesn't know for sure that nobody really knows that it was Dimitrov who spread this. But I do think it's, it will be a lesson, Gil, well-learned by all of them, whether it's Team or Novak himself or Dimitrov or Victor Troitsky or any of them, that they, they have to be very careful now going forward. And they have to realize that this is, this is a pandemic. It's called a pandemic for a reason, and that uh, they have to treat it accordingly and not think that because the rates of infection are low in that country, that means you're out of the woods. Agreed. Um, I was initially disappointed that I didn't think Djokovic took responsibility for the, the errors of the tournament, but he quickly corrected it in an updated statement that he, that he put on, on his social media platform. So I was, I was glad to see after initially he didn't quite take full responsibility that he ultimately uh, did. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think he understood when he had a chance to reflect on it, he now knows. And they they're obviously postponing these other events. They're not trying to just barrel through and say, oh, we'll fix it, we'll play, we'll be fine. For now, they're, they're not going to do it, which is very wise. But it's going to be fascinating, Gil, to just see where this leads as we get closer to the Open and who decides to play and, or, uh, and who doesn't want to come at all. And then, and then, again, does it get out of control if a couple get, get the virus? Does, you know, does it, how badly does it spread? But I think you're right. I think they may... They, if they keep these measures in place and they keep this distancing, they could keep it from getting too prevalent among the players and the draw in the men's and women's games. Steve, thanks as always for uh, your perspective. It's always appreciated. Thank you, Gil. I enjoyed it. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis Classics. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is an analysis of the 2013 French Open semifinal between Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic, and I'm joined by Hall of Fame tennis writer and author Steve Flink. By now, 
You know him very well, always insightful. But before we get into this match and before we get into our conversation, I do want to go over some Rafole tactics, some uh, some Nadal Djokovic tactics, because I have covered at length, whether it be after the 2019 Australian Open final or in my uh, Monday Match Analysis Classics episode of the 2012 Australian Open final between Djokovic and Nadal. I have covered at length how Djokovic is able to rush Nadal on his forehand side. His backhand is so good. His cross-court backhand is so good that he's often able to take so much time away and hit the ball on the rise and handle Nadal's heavy topspin forehand in a way that enables Nadal, uh, Djokovic to coax short balls out of Nadal by attacking the Rafa forehand. And after he does that, he can change direction down the line with his backhand, or he can run around the backhand and open the court with the inside-out forehand or the inside-in forehand. That is a pattern that's very problematic for Nadal on faster courts. It all changes on clay courts. Because to my eyes, Djokovic is no longer able to rush Nadal on the forehand side on a clay court. Because instead of the ball skidding through the court, the clay court grabs the ball. It slows down the ball. And it buys Nadal the requisite time on the forehand side where uh, he, he is no longer in a position where maybe um, he has to abbreviate his swing or he doesn't get his feet in position, or the ball's coming uh, so hard that he's not comfortable changing direction. That all changes. So just to give you an idea of what I'm seeing. So here's uh, a deep backhand by Djokovic to Nadal forehand, and he gets another. Djokovic steps in, takes the ball on the rise, cranks this backhand cross court again to the Nadal forehand, and this is the situation where I think Nadal is very, very comfortable simply changing direction down the line, using his big, heavy forehand and doing damage to Novak Djokovic on a clay court, and that's a clean winner down the line. It's a lot harder for Nadal to change that pattern and go down the line when he's playing in Australia at the Australian Open or in England at Wimbledon. But in the French, I no longer think that the cross-court rally on the ad side of the court, I no longer think that that's an advantage for Djokovic. And that's a, that's a key difference. But I think that Novak understands that. And I don't think that Novak tries to win the match by, by basically looking for that ad court, cross court rally. I don't think that Djokovic places any emphasis on trying to rush Nadal on the forehand side when he plays Nadal on a clay court. So I think Djokovic's tactics are completely different on a clay court. So here's what I think Djokovic tries to do instead. And I've seen Dominic Team do this very effectively to Nadal uh, on clay as well. I think that Djokovic instead tries to pin Nadal in his backhand corner. Try to hit heavy to the Nadal backhand, make him hit you know, high open stance backhands from the corner and go from there trying to open up the court uh, with the forehand. So I think it's the other cross-court rally that Novak Djokovic is looking for. So here's an example of when it works. Djokovic, heavy cross-court to the Nadal backhand. And now Nadal tries to defend down the line here, but it's, it's too weak, it's too short. Djokovic runs around the backhand and this time hits an inside-in forehand for a winner. But of course, tennis is all about attack and counterattack. You can try to have a pattern that you know you like all you want, but Nadal will of course have a counter, a way to change the pattern. It's very interesting. According to Tennis Abstract, Rafa Nadal hit more backhands down the line in this match against Djokovic than he did forehands down the line. And as I'm watching this match, and when I watch Nadal clay, uh, on clay at any time, I always notice he loves to hit the backhand down the line. Whether he is using it 
um, to trade, or sometimes even he'll defend down the line, which is really not what you teach. You teach, you defend cross court, lower part of the net, more court to work with, and you attack down the line. That's basic tennis directionals. But watch Nadal on clay. He doesn't defend with his backhand cross court um, all the time. Many times he'll defend with his backhand down the line because he's trying to change the unfavorable pattern. He knows that he will lose that cross-court rally on a clay court. Righty forehand to, to Nadal's backhand, uh, even as, as great as Nadal's backhand is, that's not really the rally he wants to play. He'd much rather be on the other side. So he uses a pattern changer, okay? He uses a pattern-changing backhand down the line or a neutralizing defensive backhand down the line. Both does the same thing. He's attempting to take what is a cross-court rally on the deuce side and change it to, to a, a cross-court rally on the ad side. Djokovic this time hits a, a backhand down the line. Again, Nadal in a defensive position, a sliding, running backhand, but he hits it down the line. Plenty of loop on, this ba on these backhands down the line. That's important, not only because it gives Nadal net clearance and safety, but also because it gives him time to recover to the middle of the court. So Djokovic, here's another perk. Djokovic hits this at, at shoulder level. He probably would rather uh, hit this at a lower level uh, contact point, and he'd probably get more on it if he hit it at a lower contact point. But here Djokovic goes uh, cross court and hits it with great depth. But still, Nadal gets what he wants here. Nadal gets his forehand. And now he can hit the same shot that we talked about at the beginning. This forehand down the line, which is the biggest weapon on the court. I don't care who he's playing. It's the biggest weapon on the court. And he can win himself. He can give himself a chance at using that weapon with the pattern-changing backhand down the line like he does here. And he puts it in a perfect spot, and it is a clean winner in a massive, massive part, a massive point in the match. So again, um, I think that the way Nadal is able to control his backhand down the line in neutral and defensive positions, it gives him so many opportunities to use his forehand. And by my count, nothing set up the forehand down the line by Nadal in this match more than the backhand down the line. But it's the ability to hit both of those shots with incredible control. At the end of the day, I find that um, this is why this is why you can see the advantage that Djokovic might have on a fast court when we just talk about directionals and patterns. Those advantages are eliminated on clay. And of course, you'll see um, a much uh, a much different story head-to-head -head on clay when Djokovic meets Nadal as opposed to when Djokovic meets Nadal um, on hard courts or grass. All right, that just about does it. Without further ado, my conversation about the 2013 French Open semifinal with Steve Flink. We're joined once again by Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink of Tennis.com. You know him very well by now. Steve, pleasure to have you back on. It's been a little while. Thanks, Gil. Looking forward to once again dissecting one, an important match in tennis history. And as always, I love to chew on these topics with you. Oh, yeah. So if you like what you hear in, in this one, uh, Steve and I have, have done this twice before during this pandemic. We went back and we looked at the 1984 French Open final between Yvonne Lendl and John McEnroe. And we looked at the uh, 2001 U.S. Open quarterfinal between Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras. We continue to go ahead in time this time, and we're looking at what is uh, for sure the best meeting between Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal at the French Open. That came in 2013 in the semifinals. Uh, Steve, there's, there's no doubt about that. There's been a couple times where these two have met in the French, and it's been highly anticipated, but this one really lived up to the billing. Absolutely, Gil. You know, they'd had, they, they'd started, the first time they ever played in this one, they played every year since 2006. Their first meeting was at Roland Garros in 2006, and 
Rafa won a fairly routine couple of sets, hard-fought sets four and four, and then Novak had to retire, some type of an injury. And that's what commenced the rivalry. And they met there again the next couple of years. But everybody knew in those years, Gil, that there were there was no way Novak was going ready to beat him yet in a match of that consequence. And Rafa won those fairly comfortably. And and but by the time we get to 2013, a lot has changed. And we'd had a, some uh, uh, the pendulum had swung in the rivalry because at one stage, you know, Rafa had a 16-7 lead, and then Novak cut that to 16-14. By the time we come into this French semi of 13, it's 19-15 in favor of Rafa. It's gotten much tighter. And, uh, and a lot of people thought coming into the semifinal, even though Novak had lost to Rafa in the finals the year before, when he was going for four majors in a row, something he did accomplish in 2015 and 16, but almost got there in 2012. Rafa beat him in a rain-delayed four-set final. So here we are in 13 and highly anticipated clash in the semis, and Rafa had struggled early in the tournament. So this match really had the, the look and feel all along of being that it could turn into an epic. And many of us thought that Novak had a pretty good shot at winning that day. What do you think Djokovic took away from that 2012 final? It was the first time they had, they had met each other um, in a final at the French Open. And as you said, Djokovic had a fair bit of momentum as the rain started to come down. He was up a break in the fourth set. They had to resume the match on Monday. And from there, it was all Rafa. But what do you think Novak took away from that match? Well, I think he felt it's just what you were alluding to. I think he felt very disappointed that if only they could have kept playing the first night, but they were playing through rain, but he was handling at the end of it. He was in a much calmer state and hitting through the court, hitting through the ball beautifully. And Rafa was the one who was agitated. So Rafa from two sets to love and a breakup in the third lost eight straight games and finally held his serve to make it 2-1 to stay only one break down. But, and that helped coming into the next day. But I think Novak felt like he had all this momentum and that if the weather had only held and there'd been more light and they could have concluded it in, in, on the Sunday that he might well have come away with a victory because everything was, everything was going his way. And he certainly was doing better in the, in the rainy conditions than Rafa. There's no doubt that he was able to generate more pace and, and uh, hit more penetrating shots than Rafa was able to do. So I think he felt like, okay, I really had a chance that day. And by 13, it's a different story altogether. Plus, he knew that Rafa, the first couple of rounds in Roland Garros of 13, wasn't very sharp. And he got better as the tournament progressed. But Novak was feeling like, you know, by that stage, he'd had a win over him on clay earlier in the season. So he felt like, okay, I, I, I can do this. Best of five or not, I can do it. And we should tell everybody, Gil, it was a very windy, it was a sunny day, but quite windy throughout the match. They both had to cope with those difficult conditions and it impaired them both at different times for different reasons, but it made, it made for an even more fascinating encounter. That's interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that for sure. Um, but, but first, another thing I think to note is that after that match in 2012, Nadal sustained a rather serious knee injury. And I think that this, yes, was, yeah. this was a time where people had serious doubts about Nadal's ability to come back strong. He missed seven months. He missed the U.S. Open. He missed the right. Australian Open. It was fairly yeah. astonishing how well Nadal came back from this injury. Yeah, you're right. He had gone on to Wimbledon. That's where, he, that's where we first found out. I think it was the wear and tear of another long, typically long, and debilitating clay court season for Rafa that had ended with a French Open win, which was nice, but it, it did him in, as you said. And absolutely. So he had to come back early in the 2013 season after missing the Australian. And it took him a while to get his bearings, but he got going and he was playing some of his best tennis. He played really well through the clay circuit, and not his all-time best uh, year on the clay, but certainly looking sharp and getting some confidence. But still... It had been in the back of his mind. He knew what he'd gone through, Gil. So he still wasn't quite as sure of himself as he was most years heading into Roland Garros. Right. So Nadal, he did win Barcelona, Madrid, and Rome. But when he had to play Djokovic in Monte Carlo, he dropped Lost. that match 6-2, yeah. 7-6. Six, six. All right. So let's, let's exactly. start this. It was a clear cut 2-6 because the tiebreaker yeah. wasn't even clear. So. No doubt that they both were aware of that too. Now, Rafa liked the fact that this was now going to be best of five, but it, there were just so many reasons to look forward to this match. So uh, let's get into it, shall we? Let's start. The, uh, the match sure. begins 
immediately what I'm most impressed by, and it'll give us a chance to talk about a major theme with Nadal, I'm immediately impressed by Nadal's serve. Now, Djokovic was uncharacteristic on, on the return, really not hitting the neutralizing returns that we're used to seeing, but it was a very dominant um, serving start and a, a really nice service rhythm at the beginning in the first set by Nadal. And that's what stuck out to me in the early going. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, he didn't lose his serve in that first set. It just came down to one break and he did a nice job of backing his serve up. He served nicely into the body. He mixed it up well. Novak definitely didn't find his range on the returns yet in that set, no doubt about it. And then there was a carryover, Gil, because Rafa was able to get up that break in the second. He was up a break at 3-2, so you really felt, and I felt sitting there watching it live, oh boy, Rafa, if he, if he cements this and goes up two sets, forget it. I mean, you're, you're just, you're not going to beat him from two sets to love. And Novak was well aware of that, and I thought it was a remarkable surge from Djokovic from 3-2 down in the second down a break to break two times running, win four games in a row, and run out the set. He really lifted his game during that stretch. And as you said, Rafa, up until then, he, uh, you know, he was unbreakable. But now Novak got him two times running to make it one set all rather than finding himself in a two-set deficit. Djokovic keyed in on the return. At 3-4, it flipped, and that's kind of the game you're alluding to where Djokovic surges, gets the break back. He made some, some really great aggressive returns. As for Nadal's serve, which... Uh, that, of course, we should say, Gil, that was actually, by then, it was the second break. Because he'd come from 3-2 down already to break oh, back. Right. And that actually put him the break up. So that oh. was a, remarkable that, given what you just said about Rafa serving up until that stage, Rafa had felt in a comfort zone on his serve. And now here he yeah. is getting broken two times running to lose the set, which I think was kind of jarring. But then we had a really bizarre third set. Because yeah. Rafa... Started with a deuce game on his serve, but the next thing you know, he's up five love, and he's got 15-40 on Novak's serve, and Novak was lucky to win the one game. And Novak definitely looked physically a bit flummoxed. Something was not right with him physically or mentally in that set, and he pretty much conceded it by the time he got down two breaks. And he knew he was lucky to win the one game that he got. And I remember thinking at the time, Gil, sitting there in the press section, is he going to be able to physically stay with him in the fourth? How is he going to do this? I mean, he's maybe it was wise to lose the set quickly and not waste too much energy, but you just wondered, could he summon something, some inner strength there to come back and be physically strong enough to compete favorably in the fourth? Well, Djokovic's first serve completely escaped him. He hit it at 32% in this third set. And yeah. I also found that he was thrown off balance a lot with uh, – and I think the wind played a factor, and Nadal's heavy topspin also played a factor. It was also a hot day, so the court dried up. The ball was bouncing high. It, it was – I would I would think it was, it's kind of nightmarish conditions to play Nadal. Would you say that – I mean, yeah, I, consider, I consider Nadal to be a, a tremendous wind player. I agree with that. But, there, you know, we saw that – we saw it work in both players' favor at different times. I thought it might be an advantage. I also think there were times – Earlier on, though, Gil, before Rafa started striking some of the spectacular inside-out forehand winners, where he was a little bit inhibited off his forehand side early on. And, I, and, and that, I felt, was where the wind maybe got in his way a bit. It, it, it worked both ways and in, in fluctuated throughout the match. But to me, those fourth and fifth sets, Gil, as is so often the case in classic five-set matches, were by far, far and away the best tennis of the match in the fourth and fifth. It seems to me that a, an overwhelming majority of classic best-of-five tennis matches feature a fourth-set tiebreak. I mean, it, yes, it, yeah. it seems like a really common theme. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, it, 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 you saw it in the it, – it, it happened so many times, and it's especially tough for the player who's trying to come from behind the way, you know, that we saw with Rafa in the 12 Australian – the way, way he nearly beat Novak in the epic five-hour, 53-minute match is that he, he was fighting to stay alive in the fourth and managed to do it. And here, it's Novak. But here's what struck me about this fourth set, Gil. Rafa goes up the break. He's got 4-3. Mm -hmm. You're thinking, okay, two more holds, and he's got himself a well-deserved, fairly clear-cut four-set win. And I remember thinking at the time when he got the first break that he was, that's exactly what was going to happen. 
He's a great front runner, as we all know. And the, all of the great players kind of share that trait. And Novak played such a great game there to break back where he hit a, you know, it, it was like almost, they weren't four out winners. There were two winners. One was an incredible angled backhand return and then another great, he ended up hitting another uh, approach on the baseline, another winner that he almost invented. Backhand angle winner of a shot that Nadal hit down the middle. And finally, he hits an angle forehand return that Nadal can't handle on the back end down the line. Just a great game to break back. But Rafa, unruffled, as, as I'm sure you noticed too, breaks again to now serve for the match. And that, to me, was incredibly uh, gutsy game from Djokovic because Rafa hits two forehand, inside-out forehand winners in a row to go 30-15. He's two points away from winning 7-5 in the fourth. Then he pressed a little bit going for another forehand winner from a very deep position and trying to go inside in, and he missed it. Fair enough. But then Djokovic plays a great backhand return virtually on the baseline that forced Rafa into miss it forehand. And then he takes control of the next rally and hits a forehand winner off a, off a looping backhand from the Dallas. So again, I don't think Rafa did much poorly. In either. You could fold him for maybe the 30-15 era serving for the match, but it was, he just made two winners. He went for a third in a row and he couldn't pull it off. I don't think, I think this was more about Djokovic playing two great return games to keep himself in that match. Don't you agree? I do agree. And especially, especially the returns. I think it all started with the returns. Oh, absolutely. All three of them were perfect. They, all three of them were, were within two feet of the baseline. And it's, that's just a common theme throughout Djokovic's career that, you know, not every return is going to be perfect, but in the biggest points of the match, if oh, he's yeah. got a racket on it, it's generally oh, no. a great return. Yeah, absolutely. But in turn, he also, then he took control of those points when Rafa yeah. tried to fend him off. And I thought that was remarkable. So it was understandable to me, Gil, that Rafa didn't play a very inspired tiebreak. Novak didn't lose any points on his serve. He really, and he got the mini break early, went right up to love early. And, and he really never looked like losing that type of understandable because here's Rafa in the, by the middle, I'm sure from the start of that tie break, sort of wondering why he's still on the court. A little bit shocked that he hadn't been able to close him out, knowing that it wasn't his fault, but thinking that the match could have been over and Novak really soaring with confidence at this stage. So here it is, an easy tie-break win for Novak takes us into that fifth set. And then, of course, it carries over because he gets the break right away at the start of the fifth. Yeah, I was surprised at how, how scratchy that first game of the fifth set was uncharacteristic yep. by Nadal, a double fault and an error to start. Uh, just yeah, going back to the tie-break. Sorry to interrupt. And then he gets himself down, love 40, and he just couldn't yeah. recover. It got to 30-40, and it was too much. Right. You're right. It was scratchy. And again, I think he was a little disconcerted about not knowing that he twice had the break in the fourth and late in the fourth, one at 4-3 and then in serving for the match at 6-5, that, th those are situations where he likes his chances. So I think it was playing on Rafa's mind. We know how mentally tough he is. He might be the toughest player mentally we've ever seen in the men's game. But even he is human. And I think that he was, he was very unhappy not to, have, not to have closed him in four. Let's take a second to, to talk about the crowd here. The match started, and it was lunchtime in Paris because Sanga was in the semifinal. So this match was, was slated first up. It was Sanga Ferrer, uh, the second matchup. By, but by, by this point in the fourth set, there was not a single empty seat, and there was constantly these dueling Nole and Rafa chants. Um, and I'm just wondering how you assessed the crowd, and in general, when these two met at the French Open, how, how you assessed the crowd support. The crowd, the, the, Rafa almost always had, the, I can, with rare exceptions, one of the exceptions would be when he lost to Soderling in 09, and he'd won four in a row at that stage. And he was actually quite upset that year that when he lost to Soderling that the crowd really got behind the underdog and they were kind of rude to him. Otherwise, I think these crowds are largely on his side. They were very appreciative of Djokovic's most inspired tennis. They weren't coming down hard on Novak by any means, but no, but Rafa was a fixture at Roland Garros as we've seen then and as we've since seen. You know, it, it they and they really appreciated his his spunk and his professionalism and his clay court expertise. So they, I think that crowd was was largely on his side, but not to the point of 
it, it wasn't like a crowd that Novak experiences, say, when he plays Roger. There mm -hmm. still was some appreciation for him, and they certainly were not applauding his mistakes. And when he would go into a great spell, like he did at the end of the second set with the four-game run, or when he pulled out the fourth, they, they definitely showed their uh, appreciation in a pretty effusive way. So uh, they, they were actually pretty fair, but, but Rafa really had enduring support at Roland Garros. Always I agree. has. I agree. So we go to a fifth set. It's the first five-set match that Nadal has played at the French, other than the 2011. Was that a first-round match against John Isner? Yes. Yeah, it yeah. was. So, uh, that that is... was a very awkward match. The Isner match yes. was very – it was such an atypical clay court match with Isner basically playing his same brand of tennis, the big serving and explosive powers off his forehand side and giving Rafa no rhythm. And that, that was a very arduous match. You're right. But, yeah, absolutely. So here we are. But this is more conventional. This is too great. Because by now, Djokovic really has established himself as a great play quarter in his own right. So this is more. And the other thing, Gil, was it wasn't nearly as long as the five-hour, 53-hour contest in Australia the previous year. Uh, you know, this one, especially because we had the quick third set, this was moving along at a faster clip. So, yeah. But still, it's still five, and it's still demanding play court points. We mentioned that Djokovic goes up the early break in the fifth set. And my, my underrated game of the match is at 1-3. And, and let me just say something right here and right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't want the viewers to take this the wrong way. But it, I, I'm tempted to say that great minds think alike. Because that game, I couldn't agree with you more. That game was critical because if Djokovic goes up two breaks, 4-1 in the fifth, it's going to be almost impossible, even for someone as indefatigable as Rafa Nadal, to stop him. And the tennis that Nadal played to pull out that game, the shot that I remember the most was at 30-all. Yes. And Novak had pulled Rafa off the court with a cross-court point. He, pretty, look, he thought he had the point one. Rafa on the run on the full stretch. It's a back-end cross-court winner on the sideline. And had Novak kind of grinning. Novak would always acknowledge some of the shots. He knew it wasn't lucky, but he also knew it was improbable. And that could have given him a break point. And that game goes to a couple of deuces. And Novak was pushing hard to get this insurance break. And Rafa just would not let him have it. And Rafa won that game, held on with another magnificent cross-court backhand winner. So that was a really critical game, pivotal game. And one that where Nadal displayed a lot of guts. Yeah, and and a backhand down the line at Deuce to to yep. set up the game point that Nadal ultimately yep. secured. So the backhand is the hero here. I mean, the Nadal's backhand was sensational in this game at one three, and you know this isn't the game that's most remembered in this match. That that uh, would go to the three four game that we'll get to in a moment. But I'm glad we both agree that this is a game where Djokovic played well enough to really put this oh. match away and Nadal didn't let him. No, you, exactly. Nadal didn't let him because Novak, by no means did he throw it away. And he really threw a lot of artillery at Rafa. He really wanted that game badly because he knew what it would mean to go two breaks up. And everything was going in his favor from the time that Rafa had served for the match and Novak breaks and Novak sweeps the tie break easily. He's got the early break in the fifth. If he goes two breaks up, he knew he would be virtually unstoppable. And Rafa knew it too, which is why it was so uh, commendable to see him dig in so deep in that game and keep himself. And he's always, that's one of the things that's always impressed me about him. I remember he was in a similar situation in the two, later in the year at the, at the 2013 U.S. Open final when Novak was threatening to go up two breaks and perhaps pull away in the third set and that it was a set all at that stage and could have, and Rafa managed to fend him off and you saw him look up at his corner when he held to keep himself you know from going down a couple of breaks and he he looked up at his honorage and you could tell it was it, he was saying to them hey I needed that and I needed it badly and I'm going to be okay now and he's very expressive that way you know he doesn't hide that I mean it's not showing it to the whole stadium, but if you're paying close attention, you see it written all over him with his expressions. Yeah, and incredibly brave shot selection under pressure, and that is kind of a theme in the fifth set, is that he's really willing to take risks. 
and he starts to feel it. He holds the next game with three forehand winners. It's a, it's a relatively easy hold, and that sets up this game at 4-3, which is a game that everyone remembers, but I, I don't know if, um, it, not to discount its importance, but everyone remembers this point at Deuce, where, where Djokovic has a, an easy put-away semi-overhead that should have been kind of a dink over the net, and uh, Djokovic touches the net. But there were a lot of other moments in this game that... that yes, but let's, let, let's talk... But before we get to the other moments, let's, talk, let's not bypass that. First okay. of all, you said, you said something that is very important. The score was deuce. In many people's minds, when it was written about and analyzed later, you would have thought it was a game point, and that he, therefore he blew the chance to, be, to have a 5-3 lead, that he'd have that locked. No, Deuce is not safe against Rafa Nadal, obviously. But what was a killer for Novak on that point was he hit a perfect approach into the corner off his forehand from the ball that had been hit down the middle. Couldn't have executed it better. Rafa put up, you said it was like a semi-overhead. It was almost like a semi-lob from Rafa. He was trying to loft it up there. He really didn't get much height on it. And I think Novak would have been much better off to have just closed and hit a little angle drop volley. It would have been high enough. It would have been almost impossible to miss it if he got it. And he was pretty tight on the net. Instead, he chose to hit that, what, what amounted to an overhead, but, you know, was more of a tap. And you could almost call it a high forehand volley. And, and yes, he touched the net. It was a shame for him because I honestly think that Djokovic of 2015 or 16 and beyond would not have made what was kind of a mental error. you got to be much more aware of how how close your body is to the net, and you know, they all know you can't do that. You have to avoid that. And it was a point, there's no way he should have lost it. Rafa, as you probably noticed, immediately started motioning with his head. He knew. He's pointing and saying, hey, 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 he knew. And Novak knew it too, even though he discussed it with the umpire. He knew that it was just, it was a, it was a, a terrible error in judgment because there's no way should he lose that point. But what we have to say is, what does he do on the next point? He comes. He comes right back now down the ad and hits a beautiful swing volley on his forehand to force an error from Rafa. He's back to Deuce again. So he really didn't fold after that error and collapse by any means. He made Rafa earn that break back. But there's no doubt that that point, uh, you know, it, it, it's one we all could, it, it, it's irrevocably lodged in our minds because it was just such a dramatic moment. And you don't expect to see a player of Djokovic's stature make that kind of a, a, a an error, you know, and, and, and allow himself to lose a point that he had no business losing. Right. It was shocking. Another note is that Nadal had a break point on the point prior and makes right. one of the more shocking forehand errors of the match. And Nadal couldn't believe it. He put his hands up to his head yeah. because it, it really wasn't, you know, he was set up for the forehand. He had it lined up and yeah. he missed I it I don't think he would have hit a winner, Gil, on that. He was set up to be hit an aggressive shot that might have, yeah. where he would have put himself in an MV, in a commanding position to win the point. But he totally mishit it. He just right. totally mishit it. And and the look on Djokovic, Djokovic did sort of a semi fist pump after that, and he was because I think it was an error he did not expect. So that's why he was so beautifully set up on the deuce point before he he made touch the net with his body like that. That you know, he got he just gotten a reprieve, and he wanted to take advantage of it. But Nadal ultimately breaks, earns himself a break point with one of the best cross court neutralizing backhands from a defensive position of the match. Yeah, uh, yeah, a really a really well earned point there. And Djokovic faltered on on break point with the forehand unforced error. Yeah, that was a little surprising. The forehand, he was he just he got. I think he was a little tight on that. He hit it in the net. It's not not the kind of error you would have expected. But on the other hand, that would have been an emotional game. And I'm sure the incident at the net, you know, and touching the net was still weighing on his mind. And so suddenly, instead of five three for Novak, who never even did get to game point, you know, he fended off the break points, but he he suddenly found himself for all. And that, that was, that was obviously a very jarring development for Djokovic and, and a great uh, moment of inspired sense of renewal for Nadal. Djokovic, I thought, um, had a really good hold at four five. It was 30 all things got, yeah. things got tense. He was 30 love up, but strong serve, good forehands forces an error. And then another point where Djokovic hits a lot of dictating forehand. So I think a really strong hold 
at four five, despite people remembering this match, um, you know, not not remembering this match for Djokovic's clutchness. I thought this was a point late in the fifth set where he easily could have been broken once again and uh, played some really good aggressive tennis in, in that four five game. Listen, it was it, it, I, I totally agree. That was that was he showed he held his nerve beautifully there and played those points from thirty all beautifully and kept himself in the match. What was tough, Gil, was from the time that that from the time that Rafa was back to four all on serve, having gotten that critical break back, he was losing a point a game on his serve. His service games were moving by swiftly. Novak was getting no opening. So then each time he would change ends and know he was serving to stay in the match. You know, it was getting, it was tough mentally. It's not as if he was creating any more opportunities to break. Rafa played with a lot of discipline through that stretch. And then finally, of course, and Novak followed with a couple of really good games, I thought, at five, six, and six, seven as well. And, but finally at seven, eight, after Rafa's had another easy hold, you know, Rafa played a great, in a cross-court backhand winner, he got himself to love 30. And then Novak on the last two points, those were just solid down-the-middle looping returns from Rafa that Novak overhit off the forehand. You know, he, I think finally it, it, it got to him a bit. It was understandable because it's the fourth time you're serving to stay in the match. You knew that you were up the break. You knew everything was sort of heading in your direction from late in the fourth into the middle of the fifth, and he couldn't quite close him out. And the other thing to mention is they knew I mean, before they even walked on the court, when, when you're talking about either Ferrer or Sanga in the final, the feeling was from either one of them, they weren't going to lose that final. I think they both were very confident. that. And Rafa, uh, he did go out of his way to defend David Ferrer in his press conference the next day and say, people that talk that way about David Ferrer, they just don't know tennis. He's a tough man to beat. And he means that, but on the other hand, he's confident against him. And Djokovic would have been confident too that, over the best of five, as tough as Ferrer is as a fighter, that he, he so in a sense, what I'm saying is these two guys, I think, were looking at their semifinal, had a definite feel of a final. Uh, you know, the, 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 the yeah. prevailing view was that whoever won this match was almost surely going to win the tournament. Rafa definitely, and Novak very likely. Steve, I feel like the the high volley putaways, I think they crushed Djokovic's spirit a bit. Um, at 7-all, 40-15, Djokovic had a game point, and uh, Nadal hits a, a tweener lob, but it's not yeah. a particularly yeah. deep lob, and, and Djokovic misses another easy putaway at the net. And then the 7-8 game, when Novak ultimately gets broken for the match on the first point, um, Djokovic gets an overhead, and it's another ugly. Oh yeah, bad miss, bad miss. That put him in real trouble. You're absolutely right. That was a bit awful way to start that game. No, listen. During this hiatus, during this period when we haven't had any official tournaments being played, and he's done some of some things that have been on the internet. You know, some Zoom type things. Different people, different. He sat. He did one with Stan Babrinka where they talked about some of their matches and. And in one of those sessions, he did, he was very open about sort of his vulnerabilities and he joked about his overhead. And uh, almost saying, in, in essence, I hope maybe there's somebody out there that can teach me and I did an overhead. It has been an issue his whole career. Having said that, I've seen him make some very difficult overheads at certain times in certain matches. It comes and goes, but if he's tight, I mean, he had one on match point against Nadal way back when in the Olympics. And uh, in, in 2008, he, you know, where he missed an easy overhead that cost him the match and off a pretty short lob. So no doubt that that's been an Achilles heel, but it's pretty hard to exploit it. And he, how, how many overheads is he going to hit in a match? And in fairness to him, when he's relaxed and he's not thinking too much about the score, I mean, I've seen him make some against Federer that have been spectacular, that were actually not easy overheads, where he's, but he's made them look easy. So... It's, it's in his head. I really believe it's in his head. It's not his technique. You suddenly see him slow down this, the speed of the racket. And you see him, rather than just swing freely, you can feel him tightening up. And you're right. That's exactly what happened at the end of the match against Rafa. Heartbreaking loss for Djokovic and an one of the most exhilarating wins, I think, for Nadal. And what he said afterwards, Gil, was fascinating. We, you and I have talked many times about the 2012 Australian final, the five-hour 53 epic, in that, that Nadal 
came so close to winning after leading 4-2, 30-15 in the final set. And he had a passing shot that with an open court, Djokovic stranded and Rafa steered a backhand pass wide down the line, could have given him 40-15 and he probably would have won that match. But my point is, he said after Roland Garros, I pro Novak probably should have won this today and I should have won in Australia, which was a very nice way to look at it. He's a very fair-minded guy and he knew all things being equal, he probably should have closed out Novak in Australia and Novak probably should have closed him out on this particular afternoon. But, but he was kind of looking at it philosophically like that that's how tennis works and things can, might even out at times. And you're going to win some matches that you should lose and vice versa. And I thought that was a, a very uh, interesting way for him to look at it and very accurate. I agree. I mean, the parallels between these two matches are rather uncanny. You have the 6-1 set. You have a tremendous fourth set escape to force a fifth. You have the winner of the fourth set taking a lead in the fifth set. Then you have a highly memorable blunder. Then you have overtime fifth set tennis. And, yeah. and ultimately, Nadal wins on his you know, home major, so to speak. The French and Djokovic takes it in Australia. Yeah. Now, of course, if Novak had not gone on in 2016 to finally finish off his career Grand Slam, but become the first to win four majors in a row since Labor won the actual Grand Slam in 69. I think this match with Rafa in 13 would be more haunting. The mm. fact that he was able to come back and finally win a French, and he, and he put that on his resume, I think probably helped him to forget this. But this at the time had to, and I think frankly, it had lasting implications. I think it's one of the reasons why over that summer, you know, he was still feeling it a bit and he'd lost the Wimbledon final to, to Andy Murray. And he comes to the Open final and loses to Rafa in a very hard-fought four-set match where they split the first two. And finally, you know, Novak had that chance to go up the two breaks in the third that I mentioned earlier. And then at four-all in the third, Rafa, you know, comes back from love 40 to hold his serve. And then, he, you know, he breaks Novak in the next game and romps in the fourth. But I had a feeling there was sort of, sort of a lingering – his confidence was, was wounded. He, his psyche was wounded by that loss to Rafa in Paris, which was a heartbreaker for him. And that it definitely uh, made, gave Nadal a big a boost as well. No doubt about it. And in the next year, they kind of complete their trilogy, this time once again meeting in the final – and it's another four-set victory Nadal after, uh, by Nadal after dropping that first set. Right, would you right. Say that, would you say that Novak didn't find as high a level in this 2014 match as he did in 2013? Definitely not. Yeah, definitely not. I think he was a little – Rafa didn't play a very – Rafa was quite nervous in 14. I think he felt mm -hmm. a lot of pressure, thought it was a match he should win. And, and Novak was not terribly sharp, and Rafa's having to fight finally – pulls out a tough, long sec second set, and it turned the match his way. But no, Novak, and Novak's form was really very in and out in the 14 match. I think he played better in 2012 in the final, once he got from, came from that deep de deficit two sets down. The tennis he played, especially to pull out the third and go up in the fourth, was better than anything we saw from him in 14. No, Rafa was just a better player. But funny thing is, they both were vulnerable. Rafa had had the problem at the start of 2014, losing to Stan Wawrinka for the first time ever. He'd never lost a set to Stan Wawrinka, and he hurt his back in the warm-up. And Stan played a great match and beat Rafa in the finals of the Australian. And, and Rafa had some lingering problems with his back into that spring. And I think he was still a little bit uneasy coming into the French and, not, again, not feeling at the top of his game confidence-wise. But in turn, Novak, uh, I, I just think physically, I don't things were a little off. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but physically he wasn't quite right. And so it had a similarity in a sense that he gets a set and makes the fourth competitive. It had some parallels to the 2012 final in that sense. But you didn't feel like Novak, even though he fought hard in the fourth, you didn't think he was going to be able to win it. And so, But I would say it was not – a that standard was nowhere near what we saw in 13 from either of them. Djokovic did say he wasn't feeling well, wanted to make sure not to be using that as an excuse, but he, that yeah. could have been a reason why. But I think Rafa, in, fair, in fairness, Gil, I don't think Rafa was feeling that great in 14 either. So I don't think either no, I one of them, I don't think either player was able to do themselves full justice. So to me, uh, of, the, of the really uh, 
interesting matches they played against each other, you know, uh, whether it was the 12 final or the 13 semi, the 14 final, that one I put down at the bottom. I just think they, they did the best they could under trying circumstances when neither one was really prepared to play their best tennis. They just were trying to get through it. And then Djokovic finally gets the better of Nadal um, in, in 2015. How would you compare the, the two, I would say, four-part series that occurred early on in the 2000s, from 2005 to 2008? It was these, these meetings uh, between Nadal and Federer. And then this was kind of the next era from, from 2012 to 2015, these series of matches at Roland Garros uh, Nadal against Djokovic. How would you compare those two? Comparing the, the Nadal, I'm not sure what you're asking. Well, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm always interested in the fact that I, I don't really think that, I don't think that the Federer meetings really lived up to what they should have been for some reason. I think that Federer was a little bit intimidated early on um, by, by Nadal. Nadal. Yeah, right, 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 yeah. right. Okay, I get you now. Yeah, I, I listen, I think I take it a step further. I was thinking about it as I was thinking about doing this segment with you today. I honestly believe that as riveting, as stylistic the matchup is with Federer and Nadal, and there's more of a contrast, obviously, because of the way Roger plays. Just, you know, whether Roger plays Novak or, or Rafa, you get the contrast, and he's a classic player. He's got the classic strokes and he can attack, he can defend, he's got touch, he's got power. You know, it's a, he's going to bring out, bring out a contrast. But I believe that, that there have been more high-quality matches played between Djokovic and Nadal. That, yes, there's no doubt in the early stages, Roger, and funny enough, it's, 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 it, it's a couple of things. And that's the exception of the 08 Wimbledon final, which I think is still the greatest match I've ever seen with Rafa and Roger. But... There have been many other times when in the early stages that you mentioned, Roger, Rafa was in Roger's head, and Roger could not figure Rafa out, and you sense the kind of, uh, this sort of uh, confusion in Federer's mind about how to go about beating him. He didn't know quite what to do. Then, then suddenly after 15, you know, and, and especially starting in 17, when Rafa lost to Roger after leading 3-1 in the fifth set of the Australian final, suddenly Roger began to get into Rafa's head. And I don't mean by any gamesmanship from either one of them in either case, by the way, just the circumstances of Roger improving his backhand and taking it earlier and finding a, a new methodology to combat Rafa. And Rafa not quite as sure of himself playing Roger. And suddenly, so you see... We've seen matches, for instance, you were going to 0508, but I thought one of the most disappointing quality matches from Nadal against Federer was the one last year in the semis of Wimbledon. I don't think he played well at all. I think it was a brilliant performance from Federer, but disappointing from Nadal. While these two guys, look at what Djokovic and Nadal have done in the period that you're describing. We had this, that incredible Australian five-hour, 53-minute masterpiece one by Djokovic, seven, five in the fifth. We have this one, which goes to nine, seven in the fifth, and Rafa pulls it out. And then we have that Wimbledon semi in 18. Granted, some distance between, but it's a third major, a third five-setter, right down to the wire, 10-8 in the fifth. Djokovic pulls it out and goes on to win the tournament. I mean, pretty astounding. I mean, we don't have an epic like that from them at the U.S. Open. We have some very good ones. But in three of the four majors, they produced epics against each other. Not to mention there's been a number of other matches, too, that have been pretty riveting between the two. So maybe it's not as great a stylistic matchup, but I believe they played more high-quality contests against each other than Rafa and, and Roger have. I agree. That's a great point. And, and I think the astonishing thing about the big three is that you can make an argument for any of the matchups that, that they are the most entertaining, and it's just a matter of taste. Because, you know, you have things to lean on for, uh, again, each matchup. Let's end it on this, though, talking about... Just a quick, just a quick sure. thing, sorry, before we get off this. Then, sure. of course, we throw another in, into the mix right. that might require a whole separate discussion. That would be the Djokovic-Federer rivalry, which has also been a beauty. Yeah. And also most given unpredictable, us a, maybe. Yeah, yeah, most unpredictable, and in some ways the most fun to watch for me. Of the three matchups, Nadal-Federer, 
Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal, Djokovic. I think that Djokovic, Federer might be the most fun to watch, but I think the the most high quality skirmishes I've seen have been Nadal versus Djokovic. Yeah, I think that's a good assessment, and I I I agree with you. I think I'm with you on that. Uh, let's end on the Djokovic Nadal matchup. Uh, he had won. Djokovic had famously won seven straight against Nadal in 2011 and 2012. But yeah. after this match, or excuse me, after the 2013 U.S. Open final, Nadal had won six of the last seven. Since then, Djokovic has won 14 of the last 18. So a bit of a pendulum tendency that we've seen in this rivalry. So I'm curious, what do you think are the main ingredients? Uh, when it comes to who's getting the best of this matchup? I think that Nadal, as early, by 2011, I think we're going to hear it from him someday. When his career is over and he can speak openly and not worry anymore about rivalries that are still uh, in progress. But I think he will say that to him, even despite the fact that Roger had this great resurgence against him in the recent years, that Djokovic was always the biggest nightmare for him to play. Because unless Novak's forehand is off, look at the patterns. Novak goes cross-court into Rafa's weaker wing, and, and that favors him. Rafa tries to use that cross-court forehand of, of his, which is the trademark shot that destroys everybody else. And Novak has that incredible two-hander to combat that. Mm -hmm. And I just think he has that ability to, you know, to hit Rafa off the court, to out-defend him, and he's a better server. I think Rafa really believes that he needs to, he needs Novak to be a little off in some way, whether it's mentally or whether his forehand is just not quite as sharp as usual, and he can try to exploit that, but that he feels like he doesn't have anywhere to go. That's how I look at it. And, and I think he knew that as early as 11. Now, Novak went through some emotional some emotional instability or difficulty, you might say, you know, in, in, in after 11. You know, there were periods in 12 and 13 where he's more vulnerable mentally. And you saw it, for instance, in the fourth set of that 2013 U.S. Open uh, final, where he should have still been more competitive than he was. He'd lost a tough third set after being up the early break and after Rafa held from 4-all up 40 end of the set. But Novak, you know, he didn't compete particularly in the fourth and he lost at 6-1 and 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 I, I just think that there were periods in in those years where he he kind of maybe gave in a little emotionally he wasn't as tough as we know he can be but I think Rafa feels like that's what he had he needs something like that and Rafa will pounce when he sees any vulnerability it's technical or mental he he will exploit it but I think he that if all things being equal if he if no form that he was for instance in the last years not this year's the 2019 Australian final when he destroyed Rafa in straight sets Rafa believes that there's not much he can do to deal him there's not much he can do to stop him he just I think got he believes I, I'm surprised I can say this but he believes in his gut that all things being equal Novak at his best is just a better player than he is well, the, the cross courts are certainly a nightmare, and you mentioned that. I think on clay, it's a little bit better because I, I do, on clay, I favor Nadal on the ad side cross court, so for uh, Nadal's forehand to Djokovic's backhand. But on a faster yeah, surface, I think it tilts to Djokovic. Oh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Listen, clay just overall makes it tilt to Rafa, so you're right. And that yeah. pattern is not as much of a nightmare, but you still see it. You saw it in large stretches of this beautiful match in 2013 of what Djokovic can do to neutralize that Nadal forehand. And I think the beauty of what Nadal did that day that we didn't talk about was he hit some crucial forehand down the line winners. And it was the yeah. forehand down the line that got him the break in the first set, a couple of really good ones that got him that first break that put him up a set. And then some beauties later on in the fifth set too, where you didn't, couldn't believe from the position he was in behind the baseline off a pretty good cross-court backhand from Novak, that Rafa could snap that forehand down the line, inches inside the sideline or sometimes right on the line for outright winners that were not lucky. They were just brilliantly executed. Oh, the winners coming off of Nadal's racket were incredible in the fifth set and plentiful. One last point for me is uh, I think that there have been times in the rivalry where Nadal's serve really hasn't given him a chance because 
They can be so equal at the baseline. Sometimes Djokovic has the upper hand from the baseline. But in, in 2011 and 2012, I, I thought Nadal's serve really took a, took a step back. And I think the same for that 2018 Wimbledon semifinal. Nadal's serve wasn't helping him at all. So even well, if he played brilliantly from the baseline, I thought yeah. Djokovic still, still had the edge. In 2013, coming back from the knee injury, his serve was a little better. You can say the same thing about 2010. And what I find very interesting is you can say the same thing about where Nadal's serving um, is at right now. Well, here's the thing, Gil. I used to feel like, I think that's good analysis, very sound analysis. I just used to feel that, for instance, watching the 2010 U.S. Open final, I was watching with one of the French riders, and I kept saying to him, he's got to go short and wide in that ad court. Don't go to the corner. Novak will destroy that return. You've got to pull him short and wide. And sure enough, that, that was his most effective serve. But that worked in the early years. I just think in the end, the question is, could Nadal ever be a good enough server, at his best even, to thwart that Djokovic return? It's, it, it, Federer runs into the same problem. There's certain matches, long stretches at Wimbledon last year, where obviously in, uh, up until the end of the fourth, you know, Novak, he won the first and third and tie breaks, didn't, but didn't break them those first three sets. It wasn't until deep into the fourth that he did. So there are certain days, but I don't think he was having a good day on the return there. My point is, I think if Novak is right on his returns, he can really make Rafa have to think too much about where he's going to locate that serve. And it puts tremendous pressure on Rafa. Look at 2019 coming into the final. Rafa was, he had a good draw to be sure, but nobody was breaking him. He was looking great on his serve. And there was all this talk about technical differences, what Moy had done. They were doing things with the toss. It's going to come over with more speed. It's going to get to the returner more quickly. But then as soon as he got out there against Djokovic, he, it didn't, he didn't look like the same guy. But I, have think, I guess I'm giving more of the credit to Djokovic because it takes, I think it takes a server of Roger's caliber. Yeah. And he will struggle himself. But you have to have a great serve like Roger to have a chance to really exploit uh, Novak. And Ra Rafa will never have a great serve. He has, at his best he can, his serve is very good. Agreed, agreed. Um, okay, before we go, what's the, what's the jacket? Oh, okay. Well, this jacket is, I'll try to hold it up a little bit. Yeah. But this is from, this is from the, the 2000, the 1990 Roland Garros. And I, I, I've had it for 30 years. And I, I use it all the time, especially in the summer. It's perfect when you don't want to put a sweater on. Have a shirt like you're wearing, for instance. I, I have a workout on now, but you might have a shirt just a little come in from the heat and you're in your air conditioning and you want something just a little bit more. I, I, and I can't believe that 30 years later, it's still in, in, in impeccable condition. So I'm proud that I still have it and I hope I can make it last a lot longer. It's a gem, Steve. The, the colors, the, the throwback logo, that, that one's a keeper, no doubt. Yeah. And well, you get you have the mugs and I have the jackets, so we have it all covered. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Steve. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll do it again soon. Gil, a blast as always. Thanks for having me on. Uh, as, as always, I enjoy you know sharing those insights and replaying those matches and not knowing how you're going to feel about it. That the, the fun of this for us, I think, is that we don't know and we don't rehearse this. We right. just get on here and talk. And you've watched the match separately, and I have. And, uh, and the, the most fun for me, I have to say, is having seen it live as I did that day and then go back to it again, look at it and again, closer to the time we're going to do our talks. And it brings back the memories of the matches and it just allows me to, to delve into it even a little deeper than I did at the time. Absolutely. Tons of fun. Um, Steve, uh, be safe, be well. Thanks, Gil. Thanks a lot.